Sorry, uh, no witty intro for this episode. Um, Armor Attack 2, yay! Hey everybody, thank you for tuning in to episode, uh, was it 19 now? Yeah, episode 19 of the Atari 7800 Homebrew Podcast. I'm your host, Sean. And uh, before I do anything, I do have to acknowledge something. Um, literally just minutes after the previous episode went into the feed, I got a message from a uh, friend and listener of the show. Uh, thank you for informing me, Keith. Uh, terrible, terrible news. You probably all know by now that um, Ken Siders actually died a couple of weeks before the episode was released. I had no idea. That was I was just really shocked and sad to find out about that. He was only 49 years old, and um, I don't believe he had a wife or kids. Um, I think he was just single, and uh, according to his obituary, he died unexpectedly. I don't think anybody outside of his family knows any details. I don't know if he was in an accident or if he had a freak illness like a heart attack or something, but it's it was just really sad to hear about that. Uh, given not only his talent, but also how, how good he was to, uh, to people he didn't even know. So I just want, wanted to acknowledge that. And, um, I, I just don't know what else to say. I'm, I'm still, it's, it's, it's been a couple of weeks since that actually happened. And I'm still kind of shaken by that, to be quite honest. Uh, it's obviously terrible for his family. And, uh, I don't know. I don't know if it's selfish to say this or just simply natural because it's the way that that uh, we know him. It's just it's sad for us and that, of course, we lost a very creative and talented programmer in the Atari 7800 scene. And he had at least one incomplete project, and that was Block Drop, which was a 7800 conversion of the arcade version of Tetris. And it was looking really, really, really good. I don't know if there is a ROM available. I don't know if I th there must be because um, there's a let's compare video on YouTube of Tetris. And in fact, this is how I found out about it. One of the let's compare Tetris videos, in case you're not familiar with the let's compare videos, there are a bunch of videos on YouTube. It's called let's compare. And then it has the name of a video game, like let's compare Pac-Man. And what it does is it shows you a few seconds of just about every version of that certain game that the person who put the video together could find. And the Let's Compare video for Tetris had a few seconds of a game that said Atari 7800. And I was like, whoa, it, it seriously, it looks great. And uh, later found out it was a work in progress called Block Drop. And uh, hopefully someone's able to finish that and any other work he hasn't finished yet. Um, and uh, it's not just 7800, but I guess programming in general that uh, Ken was uh, very talented with. Apparently he had been a computer programmer for H&R Block for many years. So uh, that kind of affects me personally in a way because my wife and I always use H&R Block when it comes to tax time. So our tax preparer probably used code that he wrote. Um, and yeah, I know. Why don't you just do your taxes yourself? It's We used to, and we, we just never did feel comfortable doing that. And also if we have someone else prepare it, we get... Um, I don't. I don't know if H and R Block is exclusive with this, or if any, anybody else does that. But uh, they have like a, a peace in mind thing that uh, they throw in there, like where if you get in trouble or something up to a certain amount of time, they'll help you out. And we actually had to take advantage of that once when uh, when the feds were questioning my education credit because I was in grad school. They're like, "How do we? How do we know you didn't use that money for something else?" And so. I had to have H&R Block step in, and they, but that, that's neither here nor there. But uh, anyway, um, again, this is just terrible news about Ken. And um, I, I did see a lot of people commenting on Facebook and Atari age about how the, a lot of them are saying, wow, he, he's my age or I'm just a little bit younger than him. You know, it, make, it really makes you think. It's like, yeah, this is bad. And I'm, st I, st I, I don't know if I'm sure I've mentioned it before, but I'm not in great shape myself at all, at all. 
but I'm trying. <laughs> I'm tr- trying to make myself healthier, you know, so, so I can. I'm, and what, what's weird is I, as, as much as I weigh, I'm, I'm about 9,000 pounds overweight. I mean, I am tech. I am actually definitively obese. That that's on my medical records and everything else. But other than that, I don't really have any other health issues. When I have my annual physicals, the only thing that ever comes back as something wrong is vitamin D deficiency and my physicals are usually in the winter when I'm not outside. <laughs> so I, I I'm lucky in that regard. I actually have good genes in my family that Old age runs in my family, thankfully, and hopefully I am going to be the recipient of that. Hope I hope I live to be nice and old, but I hope I don't actually get old, you know what I mean? Well, here I am, 42 years old, talking about a video game console that was out when I was 12 years old, and what video games do I play at home? Atari 2600, Atari 7800, and I still play the old arcade games as well so yeah i don't think i'm getting old at all anytime soon but uh wow i keep do i keep veering away from ken i'm so sorry but i thing is i don't really know what else to say about ken siders um because really we don't know that much about him outside of what he did for atari age but uh so i don't know i guess um what else can i say but um ken wherever you are thank you for all you did and you know rest in peace and uh well, um, God, it's, and it feels terribly awkward to transition into anything else because of, uh, you know, such a tragic and profound event happened. Uh, so I, I just apologize folks when I go into whatever I, whatever I'm going to talk about next. But, uh, having said all of that, well, you know, why don't I talk about some uh, feedback about prior episodes? Uh, first off, um, Bob DiCrescenzo said, fun fact, I had every intention to implement a hyperspace sound for Meteor Shower when you pulled down on the joystick, but um, I completely forgot. And he has an emoticon blowing a uh, raspberry (laughs) or a Bronx cheer, whatever you want to call that thing. Uh, So, oh man, that's that's fascinating. I wonder if he'd consider doing a a slight revision to add that, which means everybody would have to rebuy the cartridge. Uh, I, I really don't think a lot of people would mind. Um, also, this feedback I thought was very kind. Um, Atari Fever and Atari Age uh, couldn't offer any feedback on Armor Attack 2, but um, Atari Fever adds, however, I am just getting back into the 7800 after a while away from it and just found your podcast. Just listened to episode one, Beef Drop, and loved it. I have them all downloaded, and I'm looking forward to listening through them. Keep it up, and thanks. Atari Fever, thank you. That was very, very kind of you. I just don't know what else to say. It's um, great to hear. And uh, Jinx says, put in a word for Ken, please, in your podcast. Of course, you all hear I did. All the games are great, except the... Except the um, uh, Anglo-Saxon word with a T-Y suffix, ones. (laughs) Uh, of course, uh, Jinx doesn't specify which ones are the, sh- um, well, um, I'm not going to say it once. <laughs> I don't want to have that explicit uh, tag on iTunes, so I'm going to refrain from saying it. But hey, you could probably figure it out. <laughs> or you could just go to Atari Age and read it yourself if you so desire. But uh, that, was, that was very nice hearing, um, hearing from people in general, I guess. Um, Oh, actually, there is one more thing I do want to talk about, and you probably heard me mention before. Um, if you were, if you've been listening to this show pretty frequently, you probably remember that I talked about how I was expecting a package, and instead of getting a package, I got a registered mail notification from the post office, which kind of had me on edge until I found out what it was. And I said that I wasn't able to reveal what it was yet, but now I safely can. It was a Mateos cart and a burner that came over from Spain. Why couldn't I talk about that before? Because it wasn't for me. It was a present for well, one of this podcast's listeners and Patreon sponsors and uh, my Pie Factory podcast co-host, Jimmy G. Um, it was a really, really huge move of generosity. And I think it was Bobby Adad Moore who started it all, who came up with this idea. He's like, he said, hey, let's take up a collection from people and get Jim something for his birthday. Uh, this happened a long time ago, like back in the spring, I think, when it all started. 
And he said, well, let's get him a, um, a Mateos cart. And if we get enough money from people, let's also get a pokey chip. And, um, if there's enough money left over, we'll get him something else as well. And, uh, a lot of people participated in this both in England and here in the States. And we were able to get the Mateos cart in the burner. We got the pokey chip. We got, uh, oh, the other thing is, um, Donkey Kong PK. Jim had put his name on the reservation list, but when it came time for him to get his copy at that time, he didn't have the money to pay for it. He's like, you know what? I'll have to pass. I'll get it later. Well, so we figured, aha, that's what we're going to get. him. we're going to get him Donkey Kong PK. So we got Donkey Kong PK. Um, I think, uh, Willie from arcade USA chipped in a couple of things as well. I think it was a couple of issues of retro gamer magazine and a vintage, pac-man drinking glass and uh, that was really awesome to see that and uh, i do publicly want to thank those who helped out uh, besides bobby adad moore and myself there were also um victor marlin and sean holly from the 10 pence arcade podcast I already talked about willie uh ferg also contributed gary from england uh phil the no swear gamer I, I really felt bad hitting him up for this because Phil has shown just amazing generosity over the past few years, not just to me, but to a lot of people. I really, in retrospect, I feel bad. I should have just said, you know what, you've done enough. But And John Singletary contributed, and so did Bill at the Atari Bytes, and it's a podcast, Charlie Brown Podcasts, uh, and Atari Age users, Cinecaster, S1500, and RJ. They were all very generous, as well as Tim and Andy from Super Podcast Brothers. So um, all of you, thank you so much for your kindness with uh, Jim's birthday. And uh, if you didn't hear your name mentioned and you're like, uh, wait a minute, why didn't you ask me? I, could, I would have been happy to contribute. Well, for one thing, if you're a Patreon sponsor of either of my podcasts, I purposely avoided that because I figured you've given enough already. <laughs> but um, it was just a really great gesture. So uh, again, thanks to uh, Bobby Adad for uh, getting that all started. Oh, speaking of uh, Bill and his podcast, I realize I haven't recommended a podcast in a long time. So I'd like to uh, take this opportunity to do that now. You may have heard me mention Atari Bytes before. And uh, of course, just seconds ago, you heard me mention Bill's other podcast, it's a podcast, Charlie Brown, and I, I've been a Peanuts fan all of my life. I was raised on that stuff practically, and um, I was thrilled when I heard that he had a Peanuts podcast, so I started listening to it um, probably about a year ago, give or take, and uh, it's a monthly podcast. It comes out the 15th of every month, so um, that means in less than a week, there's a new It's a Podcast, Charlie Brown, about to drop, and what Bill does is he talks about the animated peanuts stuff typically what he does is he talks about one peanuts special plus an episode of say the charlie brown and snoopy show or this is america charlie brown or whatever else have you he talks about like two things typically each episode sometimes he gets into other things like peanuts memorabilia and uh, a new feature he has is um, I think he calls it random strip of the week where he talks about an actual peanuts strip that was published in the newspapers. So uh, I'm looking forward to that. It's a very enjoyable. Show. Oh, I love, love, love a Charlie Brown Christmas. It's my favorite Christmas TV special movie, whatever. And I learned a lot about that from Bill and I thought I already knew everything about it. So he's chock full of great information. I will put a link to it's a podcast, Charlie Brown in the show notes. What else do I have to say? I, you know what? I don't really want to take up any more of your time than I absolutely have to. So uh, let's just move on to the mainstream of this episode's um, topic. Armor Attack 2 is a homebrew that was developed by, you guessed it, Bob DiCrescenzo, also known as Pac-Man Plus on Atari Age. It is a 7800 conversion of the arcade game Armor Attack, which was released in 1980 by Cinematronics of El Cajon, California. And uh, there was a version that was licensed out to Rockola out of Chicago, who distributed some copies of the game in the United States along with Cinematronics. 
And in Japan, Sega licensed the game for release, as uh, they did with most Cinematronics games. Now, I already talked in pretty great detail, at least for me it's great detail, about Cinematronics in episode 15 when I talked about Ripoff. But right now I want to talk about the person who designed and programmed Armor Attack, and that's Tim Skelly. Tim is a native of Kansas City, although to be honest with you, um, I couldn't tell from my research whether it was Kansas City, Kansas, or Kansas City, Missouri, and uh, from what I understand, the two are not the same. You do not want to get those two confused, or else you will have to deal with the rage of whichever Kansas City person it is you're talking to, but that's neither here nor there. What is here and there is that Tim had been interested in computers since he was in high school. And he learned how to program with punch cards at the University of Akron. Tim graduated from Northwestern University in Evanston, Illinois in 1973 with a degree in radio, television, and film. And over the next three years, he worked at a small restaurant and bar where he'd make sandwiches. And why would he do that? Well, he had difficulty finding work doing what he really wanted to do, which was cartooning and filmmaking. But since he couldn't do that and he didn't really feel like working in the restaurant industry all his life, he decided to be a programmer. So he looked through the directory issue of Replay Magazine, and uh, this by default would place the timeline circa 1975, give or take. Tim sent resumes to every company he could find listed in Replay in that directory, and he heard back from a few of them. Two of the companies that he heard back from were Sega and Cinematronics. And um, Larry Rosenthal at Cinematronics hired Tim, and then Larry left Cinematronics, and he uh, took some of their hardware and software with him and formed a new company called Vector Beam. Once again, you can hear more about that mess in episode 15. (laughs) But uh, Tim worked as a designer for Cinematronics from 1978 until 1981. At that point, Tim left Cinematronics upon... uh, doing some math and realizing that his games had brought in $53 million net profit, but he only took home $60,000 during that time with Cinematronics. So he up and left, and he worked for Gremlin Industries in nearby San Diego for a short time. Later, he packed up and he split for D. Gottlieb & Company in Northlake, Illinois, and I went to great detail about, well, again, in my opinion, great detail about Gottlieb in episode 18 about Bonk, but he worked for D. Gottlieb as an independent contractor with an agreement to design three games for the company. And thanks to some deals that his lawyer made for him, Tim was allowed to actually be credited in the game. So his first game for Gottlieb, Reactor, was the first coin-operated video game to have his name actually appear in the game without having to activate an Easter egg. Back then, companies did not allow their game designers or anybody else who worked on the games to be credited because they were afraid that other companies would steal those designers and programmers away. So this was a pretty revolutionary thing to happen with Tim. There were two other games that Tim did for Gottlieb. There was Insector, which was an unreleased 1982 game, and Screw Loose, which was another unreleased game, and that was in 1983, and after Gottlieb had become Milestar. After the North American video game crash of 1983, Tim had a little trouble getting work, which was probably a very common tale at the time. So for several months, he binge-watched horror movies while drinking margaritas, and while he was doing that, he wrote a horror screenplay called Teenagers in Hell. And as far as I can tell, that movie has not yet been made. But anyway, Tim didn't want to design video games anymore unless he had a clear understanding of what exactly makes them tick and what makes people want to play them. Well, he must have figured it out because he has since worked on many home video games, including Championship Wrestling, The Three Stooges, which is the CinemaWare home game, which is not related in any way to the Milestar arcade game, and even Sonic the Hedgehog 2 when he was art director at Sega Technical Institute. Hey, remember how I talked about how Sega was one of the companies who responded to his resume? (laughs) Anyway. 
Tim spent six years working for Incredible Technologies. Um, you might not recognize the name Incredible Technologies right away, but I can almost guarantee you, at least in America, you will have seen their games. Ever hear of a game called Golden Tea? Yeah. In fact, uh, Tim worked on Golden Tea Golf 2. Later on, Tim worked for Microsoft as a researcher, as did David Thiel, who was one of his former co-workers at Gottlieb. And uh, David Thiel also worked on the aforementioned Reactor and Insector. As for the arcade games that uh, Tim Skelly had worked on, uh, for Cinematronics, there was Starhawk, which was the first game that Tim ever wrote in Assembler that actually worked for him. That was June 1979. And then there was Sundance, which Cinematronics released in October 1979. Ripoff, of course, April 1980. Armor Attack, also from 1980. And Star Castle. If you're not familiar with Star Castle, there's an Atari 2600 homebrew version of it, but it's an arcade game that um, when... Howard Scott Warshaw tried to make for the Atari 2600. It evolved into Yars Revenge. Uh, there was a unreleased vector graphics game called War of the Worlds that Tim started working on for Cinematronics, and it was unreleased because uh, the game couldn't get enough memory to handle what Tim wanted to do with it. If you heard episode 15, you heard about the whole Vector Beam fiasco. Well, Tim also produced some games under the Vector Beam name, such as Warrior, which is a two-player sword fighting game, a vector graphics game, of course. And there was Tail Gunner, and both of those games came out in uh, late 1979. And uh, various home video games that Tim worked on include Trivia Master, Championship Wrestling, and uh, Poker Dice. So that's a little bit about uh, Tim, and um, you know what? Let's talk about the game Armor Attack. Much like Ripoff, which was the vector game he was proudest of, partly because it was the first two-player cooperative game, it took Tim Skelly about four months to program Armor Attack. He joked that he knew a game was done when its printed source code next to his desk reached the top of the desk. Rick Bryant designed the arcade cabinet art. And now Armor Attack is actually spelled armor dot 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 attack. It's quite possible that the dots represent Morse code, although it wouldn't make much sense because that's simply four instances of the letter I in Morse. But rumor has it that in Armor Attack, there are beeps that, when you translate them into Morse code, become the phrase, don't register. Well, don't register for what? Well, for the draft. Supposedly, that was a subtle form of protest by Tim Skelly because draft registration had recently been reinstated at the time. But as with most, or perhaps all, pre-Dragon's Lair cinematronics games, Armor Attack is a vector graphics game, meaning that the graphics are drawn by plotting points and essentially connecting the dots. And uh, Tim Skelly actually loved programming vector graphics because he felt they were a lot less crude looking than raster graphics in games at the time. Nonetheless, it's a monochrome vector graphics game with an overlay on the screen with not only colors to help distinguish different parts of the playfield, but also a war-torn cityscape laid out as a maze of which you have a bird's eye view. You control a jeep that has to maneuver around that maze and shoot at enemy tanks and helicopters and destroy them before they destroy your jeep. And of course, you can't tell where the maze is unless you have the overlay on the screen. Otherwise, it's a plain black screen with just your player and the enemies drawn in white graphics. In fact, it's one of two games that Tim Skelly designed for Cinematronics that requires an overlay, the other being the two-player sword-fighting game Warrior that uh, was done under the Vector Beam label. What's fascinating about Armor Attack is that you not only have to destroy enemy tanks, but you may also need to destroy the turrets on the tanks. The turrets from the tanks are going to stay intact and continue to fire at you for a short time before they self-destruct or you destroy them, whichever happens first. Periodically, a helicopter will fly over the cityscape and shoot at you. And uh, it's kind of an interesting way they implement that because the view is flat and two-dimensional, yet you simply shoot the helicopter by aiming your jeep at it and rotating. You don't need to 
um, adjust your turret for height or anything. You just shoot toward the helicopter. By default, you get five Jeeps, and you do get a bonus Jeep periodically, although, um, quite honestly, I haven't been able to ascertain how many points you need to get to get the bonus Jeep, but it's definitely more than a 1,000, I can tell you that much. In the attract mode, you're going to see score statistics, such as the player's last scores, the highest scores, stuff like that. But you won't see any of those stats, including Jeeps in reserve and your current score during actual game play. You're only going to see those stats at the very beginning of the game and when you lose a Jeep. Kind of similar to how the score appears in the game Ripoff, actually. And also much like Ripoff is the control panel, which is all buttons. Left, right, forward, and fire. Player 1's controls are on the right. Player 2's controls are on the left. Armor Attack didn't have too far a reach beyond the arcade. Um, as far as I can tell, its only official home console release was for the Vectrex in 1982. And by the way, I don't know if I made it clear in episode 15, but Ripoff was also available for the Vectrex. And uh, that makes this episode the fourth episode in which I talk about a game that also appeared on the Vectrex, the others, of course, being Scramble and Berserk, if you don't count Alpha Race. Uh, there was also a handheld LCD version of Armor Attack produced by Mattel in 1982. I've never actually seen that one, by the way. So that's uh, a little bit about the game Armor Attack itself. Now, let's move focus over toward the Atari 7800 version called Armor Attack 2. Armor Attack 2 is one of Bob DiCrescenzo's more recent homebrews, well, relatively recent at least. It was first mentioned on March 30th, 2013. Apparently, he had been working on Armor Attack during a time he was trying to figure out how to deal with the sound in Bentley Bear's Crystal Quest. Bob posted some screen caps, but no ROM files yet. And he posted that on Atari Age and talked about how he was considering calling it Armor Attack 2 because there would be several differences from the original game. First of all, your score and your Jeep counter would be located at the top of the screen and would stay there and would not go away during the gameplay. And one Atari Age user actually criticized the original developer, who uh, would have been Tim Skelly, of course, for not doing that in the first place, but... I really don't know if that's a fair criticism due to the nature of the game and the resources that he had to work with. Also, there's a set number of tanks that you have to destroy in order to complete a level in Armor Attack 2, and as you progress in the game, the required number of destroyed tanks to complete the level grows. Also, unlike with Armor Attack, in Armor Attack 2 and later levels, you may have to deal with two helicopters instead of just one. Also, Bob's version has multiple maze layouts, as the game doesn't have to rely on an overlay. The mazes are chosen randomly, and a few of those mazes actually look... That sounded weird. A few of those mazes... Oh, my voice likes to suddenly jump up like that. I don't know why. But uh, a few of the mazes look very similar to the maze layouts of the 2600 game combat. And um, even though this wasn't mentioned in Bob's list of reasons for calling the game Armor Attack 2 instead of Armor Attack... Bob's conversion uses full-color, solid raster graphics instead of trying to simulate vector graphics. Indeed, the manual for Armor Attack 2 does refer to the game as a continuation of the original Cinematronics game, hence the sequel title, Armor Attack 2. And uh, Bob did talk about the possibility of playing the game like the original Armor Attack, in which you don't really have levels, there's only one maze, and you fight only one helicopter. The reason that uh, the post that I mentioned earlier only had screen caps at this point and not ROM files is that there was still a lot of work that needed to be done. For one thing, Bob was trying to figure out how to make the tanks move properly. He looked for some source code for either the arcade version or the Vectrex version to see how the movement was handled in those versions, but alas, he could not find such source code, so he had to write his own from scratch. Also, he needed to increase the frequency of shots from tanks and the helicopter, and also he wanted to add more mazes. The first work in progress was posted on April 2nd, and it had only one of the planned 16 mazes, and some of the sound effects were missing. Bob was still working on tank movement, although he liked what he had done, and he had to warn people that the tanks would be able to move about halfway into the borders, as it were. The collision detection functionality wasn't fully in place, 
So uh, because of that, you had this interesting phenomenon. If you sat still and a tank ran over your Jeep, you wouldn't die. But if you moved while being run over, you would die. The next day, that would be April 3rd, there was another work-in-progress ROM file posted, and in that post, Bob responded to Atari Age user Allen's observation at the absurdity of putting a small Jeep against several large tanks. Bob said, well, it's a Jeep with a rocket launcher, and he, there was a little devil-faced grin on that post. Anyway, this updated version now had eight mazes, allowed for more liberal use of the select and reset buttons. That is, you didn't have to wait for the game to be over to use them. And the game detected NTSC and PAL automatically, meaning that there was no longer a need for a separate PAL, for a separate PAL ROM and a separate NTSC ROM, which means that eventually they wouldn't need to produce different cartridges for different regions. And the next day, April 4th, Bob posted another work in progress, and this time with improved tank movement. Bob also answered the question, will there be a two-player competitive mode? Eh, probably not, he said, because the original only had cooperative mode with two players. Later on that same day, Bob explained that he came up with an algorithm that calculates where the maze walls should be placed. And, um... As a result, each 20-column by 24-zone maze only took up 72 bytes in ROM. Um, if you don't know what that means, trust me, that is very tiny and ergo very efficient. Later on that same evening, Bob posted the first release candidate, which fixed the um, previously mentioned collision detection problem and added the rest of the 16 mazes. Also, if you lost a life, the level would reset, and uh, there were some color changes suggested by Atari Age user Kevin Moss 3 that were added in. Is that the same guy as cover art, Kevin? I think it is. But um, anyway, the next day, um, which if I'm counting correctly, would be April 5th, there was a slightly revised version posted with a change to the helicopter sprite design, again with a shout out to Kevin. And uh, later on that same day, there was yet another revision posted, and this time with the helicopter dark red at Trevor's suggestion. Bob loved the idea of the dark red helicopter that Trevor made, and he also made some fixes to the turret graphics. And still on the next day, Bob posted the third release candidate, which simply incorporated, and I quote, a bunch of little tweaks. Four hours later, there was another version, a new version with a minor bug fix and some graphical tweaks. And on the next day, April 7th, Bob posted release candidate four, which fixed some collision detection issues with uh, the shots that were on the screen. And later that same afternoon, he posted a picture of an Armor Attack 2 cartridge complete with custom artwork. And in the evening, Atari Age user Blue Azure posted a hacked version of the ROM that gave the player, quote-unquote, a lot more lives. On Monday, April 8th, Bob posted a revised ROM whose aim was to fix a potential bug with one-button versus two-button controller detection, but unfortunately, the user who reported that issue was still getting the same issue with the new ROM, while Bob couldn't even reproduce the problem. And uh, I know from personal experience what a big pain in the butt that is to not be able to reproduce a problem that somebody has with your code. It is such a it's, it's such an exhausting thing to deal with. But uh, anyway, back to uh, Armor Attack 2, April 10th, release candidate 5 shows up on Atari Age, and this time with tweaked Jeep graphics, courtesy of Atari Age user Pac-Man Red, who helped Bob with graphics on several other homebrew titles. There were a couple of other bugs fixed, including, or so he hoped, the previously mentioned joystick button issue. The next day, April 11th, there was release candidate 6, the already existing level cleared message now told you what level you had cleared, and Bob also added a short start of game tune and a short end of game tune. On April 12th, Bob posted release candidate 7, and barring further bugs, the final version is posted. At Trevor's suggestion, the startup tune was now the beginning of the level tune, and there was now a short tune when you get a bonus jeep. Bob also mentioned, and I quote, one other thing I can't remember, and uh, he put a winking smiley graphic on that. 
Unfortunately, Trevor discovered that there was a bug in two-player mode. If player one lost a life and had any lives in reserve, and then player two lost a life with no lives in reserve, the game continued on, but with no players. Half an hour later, Bob posted another release candidate that fixed that bug. That was fast. <laughs> Bob also mentioned that there was Morse code in the game, but implied that it had been there in the previous versions of the ROM, but nobody noticed. That Morse code was changed in a new version of the ROM the next day, Saturday, April 13th, to, and I quote, something a little more meaningful. And on the following day, April 14th, Bob offered a free cartridge to whoever was first to post what that new Morse code message said. The winner was Kevin Mouse 3, and he correctly identified the Morse code message as simply the Atari Age URL. Later that same day, Bob posted a PDF version of the manual. Unfortunately, at this time, there were still some issues with certain controller combinations, particularly when using modified controllers, and uh, Bob was unable to reproduce those issues for fixing purposes, unfortunately. So on April 16th, he posted a new ROM that removed auto-detection, and so you would actually have to choose what type of controller you were using, and you'd use the difficulty switches for that. And one advantage of this potential solution was that now if two controllers were plugged in, one could be set for single button and another could be set for two buttons, but the original auto-detect functionality could not tell if there were different types of controllers plugged in. It basically treated each port as the same. And uh, the manual was updated to reflect this new change so people would know how to use it. A month went by with many Atari Age users testing the ROMs and posting about, um, and sometimes bragging about, their experiences playing Armor Attack 2. The plan was that the cartridges would go straight to the Atari Age store, which was different from Bob's usual practice of selling a handful individually and then having Atari Age sell the game. But on May 26, Albert said that boxes were being printed and on August 16th, yep, a little bit less than three months later, Albert posted a picture of 25 Armor Attack 2 boxes on his shelf. Three days later, he requested screenshots that he could use for the game's entry in the Atari Age store. Trek MD, who's a frequent contributor to this podcast, obliged and provided some screenshots. On August 22nd, Albert announced that both Armor Attack 2 and Crazy Auto, which, uh, by the way, will be covered in the upcoming Pac-Man Collection Gigasode. Uh, those two games were available in the Atari Age store, along with the 2600 homebrew titles Blinky Goes Up and Princess Rescue, along with the Atari Jaguar title Full Circle Rocketeer. Four minutes later, Trek MD placed his order. <laughs> and uh, in the ensuing posts over the next several months, people shared their delight with Armor Attack 2, with one user going so far as to nominate Bob for the presidency for the 2016 election. Um, I don't think he won that election, did he? Oh, well. Uh, but anyway, Bob named Trevor, justifiably so, the most helpful user on Atari Age, what with his very informative posts in response to people having trouble with emulation. On November 2nd, 2014, well over a year after its original release, Albert announced that Armor Attack 2 could be purchased from the Atari Age store without a box, therefore reducing the cost of the game for those who are okay with not having the box. And as of the time of this recording, the game is still available at the Atari Age store with or without the box. In May 2014, going back a few months, um, Armor Attack 2 was one of the eight titles that appeared on the limited edition multi-cart called the Bob DiCrescenzo Collection, released to commemorate the 30th anniversary of the Atari 7800. So, now that you all know the development history of Armor Attack 2, uh, unless you weren't paying attention, let's talk about the game itself. Now, about Armor Attack 2, well, um, at this point, there's really not much to say about the gameplay because, hey, if you've been paying attention, you know how to play the game, but uh, you can play Armor Attack 2 either by yourself or cooperatively with another player. Um, actually, my notes say cooperatively with an opponent, which uh, <laughs> I don't think that's I don't think that's possible. <laughs> but anyway, you got three difficulty levels to pick from. There's easy, medium and hard. 
and uh, they basically dictate the number of tanks that are in the game and how frequently they shoot at you. The difficulty switches are used for controller configuration, like I said earlier. If your controller is a two-button Proline compatible joystick, flip the switch to the left or to the right if you're using a single-button joystick such as the classic Atari CX-10 or CX-40. The difference between those two modes, single button and two button, is that in single button mode, you push the joystick forward to move your Jeep, but in two button mode, you use one button to fire and you use the other one to move the Jeep. If you destroy a tank, you get 20 points for the initial shot that disables the tank itself, and you get another 30 points if you also destroy the turret. Shoot a helicopter and you get 100 points. And there's a bonus counter that's based on the number of helicopters you destroy, giving you anywhere from 0 through 40 points. But other than that, I'm kind of confused as to how to explain how the bonus counter works. Uh, the wording in the manual just kind of confused me. <laughs> so uh, I'm just going to shut up in that regard. Uh, every five times you destroy a helicopter, you get an extra Jeep. And when you do get an extra Jeep, the bonus counter resets. There's a helpful hints section in the manual that has one hint. Keep moving. If you stay in one place, you will be killed. Now, however, Trevor, um, Atari Age user, and I think he's also on Atari.io, and he's contributed many times to this podcast, Trevor disagrees. And he said that he found spots where you can sort of nest yourself and rack up a killer score. Um, he tried to explain it to Bob, but Bob himself, the programmer of the game, had no luck figuring out how to do it. If you can do it, great. Oh, speaking of racking up a killer score, let's talk about the high scores for this game. It should be of little surprise that Wilson Oyama, who goes by the handle Oyama Family on Atari Age, once again has the highest confirmed scores that I could find, scoring 20,000 in easy mode during the Atari Age High Score Club 16th round in February 2015, 7,360 medium, and 4,240 hard. <sighs> well, that uh, sure beats my um, 9,860 on the um, easy setting. Um, so let's hear what other people say about Armor Attack 2. Didn't get much on uh, Armor Attack 2 this time, but I did hear from TrekMD, who says Armor Attack was an arcade vector game released by Cinematronics in 1980. The game was adapted to the Vectrex, but never to any Atari systems. That is, of course, until Bob DiCrescenzo set his eye on creating a very unique port of the game for the Atari 7800. Unlike the arcade, this version is not done with vectors. Instead, Bob has decided to take advantage of the system's raster graphics to create not just the Jeep, tanks, and helicopters, but also the structures the player must move around to destroy the enemies. In the original arcade, the structures were provided by an overlay on the monitor, much like in the Vectrex version. As in the original game, you control a Jeep that is equipped with a rocket launcher, and you must move about the screen, a top view of the cities and roads, in order to destroy enemy helicopters, tanks, and tank turrets. Tanks and their turrets take two hits to be fully destroyed. Tanks can still position their turrets to fire on you after the first hit, so be careful. Unlike the arcade where you are always in the same city, Armor Attack 2 has 16 randomly selected different terrains for you to play through. This adds variety and replay value to the game. One or two players, simultaneously, can enjoy Armor Attack 2 either competing against each other or cooperating, that's you choice, I think he meant that's your choice. The graphics of the game are simple but work very well. There is plenty of variety with the terrains, and the helicopter looks really cool. Sounds are pretty good as well, given they are generated by the TIA chip. Overall, this is a really fun game and a great sequel to the arcade original. And thank you, Trek MD. And I gotta talk about something here. You said that uh, you could play either cooperatively or competitively? Is that, Are you sure about that? Is that right? Oh, uh, I'm... Hmm... I don't, I'm not, I, I, I didn't know. I thought for sure it was just cooperative. Oh, wow. Um, learn something every day. And going back to that thing about the overlays in the Vectrex, when I had a Vectrex, I didn't have armor attack. I had a very small selection of games. I had, um, let's see, Berserk, Nighthawk, Skyhawk, whatever. I suddenly forgot. Uh, Star Trek, Clean Sweep, and Scramble, and uh, Solar Quest. 
And of course, Minesweeper was built into the console, but I really rarely used the overlays. I had all the overlays. I, all, all the games I had were CIB, including the um, little white envelope that the overlays came in. But I didn't really use them that much because, first of all, they scratched easily. And second of all, it, it, I, I was still able to play. I wonder if Armor Attack would have been playable without those things uh, because the arcade version is very difficult to play without the overlay. <laughs> Um, thankfully in MAME, the overlay kind of auto generates, uh, I saw an armor attack machine that worked perfectly, except that the overlay wasn't lit up. So it was very hard to navigate on that thing. So, uh, I'm just curious about how the Vectrex version works. Like if there's any way you can tell, or if you absolutely need the overlay, but, um, Trek MD, thank you so much for your feedback. And as for my opinion on armor attack too, um, what can I say? Except I really, really like it. And I actually liked it a lot more after I finally played the original armor attack. Uh, there's a armor attack game at underground retrocade where I like to go a lot in uh, West Dundee, Illinois. And after I played a couple of rounds of that, I, Oh man, that game frustrated the heck out of me. It was one of those games that frustrated me, but it kept challenging me to play again. So I was like, you know what? Let me try again. Ah, I'm dead again. Let me try again. Let me try again. Let me try again. <laughs> I kept playing until I got my name on the little top 10 high score card that was attached to the machine. <laughs> Going back to Armor Attack 2 after that made it a lot more enjoyable. I do have one problem, though, and, I, and that's that I don't like the Jeep graphic. It's... Uh, I don't know. There's something about it that bothers me. It's kind of hard to hard to navigate with that. Well, not hard to navigate, but hard to figure out uh, which end of the Jeep is which if you're not paying really close attention. But uh, do I recommend this game? Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's a lot of fun. Armor Attack 2, definitely worth the money. And uh, so what are you waiting for? Go out and get it. I'll put a link in the show notes, as I usually do, to where you can buy Armor Attack 2. So uh, that's... Uh, what we have in regards to feedback about armor attack two. So it's come to this, the end of another episode of the Atari 7,800 homebrew podcast. Thank you for listening. And uh, next time, you know what? There was a batch of homebrews that just came out and it would be um, kind of a good idea to start talking about them. Wouldn't it be? Huh? Well, next time, the next episode Let's cover Time Salvo, um, especially because I haven't really gotten much of a chance to play it. This will force me to play it. So I'm really excited about the uh, next upcoming episode. I get to play a new game. Yay. But uh, in the meantime, I want to extend a huge thank you to my Patreon sponsors, Kyle Etter, Gray Defender, Ed Ladin Controllers, Richard Valdez, Jimmy G, and Richard Grounds. Thank you for your generosity. And um, guys, your generosity actually for the month of September has gone to a much more worthy cause. It went to NAMI Greater Houston. That's N-A-M-I, The I believe that's the National Alliance on Mental Illnesses. NAMI is a great organization. Uh, they deal with all kinds of mental health issues, including suicide prevention. Figured this would be kind of fitting considering that September is also Suicide Prevention Month. And of course, with uh, all the uh, terrible things that have been happening in Houston with uh, Hurricane Harvey, it's very likely that NAMI is going to have to help out a lot of uh, people with uh, related issues such as PTSD. So uh, your donations to this podcast have been forwarded to NAMI Greater Houston. I'm not sure if I'm going to be doing that again. I might. I might. But um, if you wish to also contribute to this podcast, you could go to patreon.com slash homebrew78, and that is p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com. You can send me an email at homebrew78 at fab4it.com, and you can go to the show notes page at homebrew78.fab4it.com, and fab4it is spelled F-A-B, and then the number four, and then I-T. Twitter handle is homebrew78, and the YouTube channel is homebrew7800. Oh, oh, that's right. By the way, had a contest, didn't I? Oh, yes, yes, yes. Um, the Armor Attack 2 game box. This is alternative artwork, actually. 
sent to me by Mark Oberhäuser, the designer himself. Big thank you to Mark Oberhäuser for that. Slightly different artwork. It says Armor Attack on it instead of Armor Attack 2, but uh, it's a very nice design. I would love to keep it, but number one, I'd feel kind of selfish. Number two, I don't actually have a standalone Armor Attack 2 cartridge. I have it as part of Bob DiCrescenzo collection. So uh, the box would kind of be overkill, and I have a box for Bob DiCrescenzo collection. So anyway, um, you may remember that the question that you were supposed to answer was, where did that little jangly 12-string part at the end of this show's theme song, the, the part that sounds like a hard day's night, where did that melody actually come from? And uh, congratulations to the person who correctly answered the Atari 2600 Cubert, when Cubert is riding a flying disc. Congratulations to Perry Thwente, or is it Thwente? I apologize, Perry, if I'm mistaking your pronunciation, but um, this sucker is going out to you, and um, I hope it gets there safely, and uh, thank you for, uh, for contributing, and thank you everybody else who uh, contributed guesses. And, um, I hope to have another giveaway before terribly long, but, uh, we'll see what happens in the meantime. Thank you again for all your support. And, um, if you're the praying kind, keep Ken Siders, family and friends and other loved ones in your prayers, along with, uh, the victims of hurricane Harvey. And of course, Irma as well, um, might be making a donation toward Irma victims. I hope that doesn't have to be the case. Um, I wouldn't wish that on anybody what what, uh, people are going through with these hurricanes, but uh, give them the support that they need. And of course, please give these hardworking homebrew developers the support they deserve. Thanks again for listening, everybody. Can't wait to talk to you again. I love your eyes. I love your smile. Your love makes my whole life worthwhile. It's you, baby, it's you. Thank <laughs> you.